Hello and welcome. Welcome to Diverse Conversations. This is Ashka Patel. Thank you very much for joining me yet again uh, for another interesting, intriguing and innovative episode focused on exploring the Canadian pharmacy innovation space. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce none other than Ashwin Janeja. Ashwin is a pharmacist and an innovator um, who has completed his Bachelor's of Science in Pharmacy in 2007 and in his PharmD in 2021, both from the University of Toronto and his MBA from from the Queen's University in 2015. He has spent his career pushing for deeper pharmacist involvement in patient care, including over 11 years as a pharmacy manager. He has most recently been working to help champion innovative approaches within pharmacy through various panels, presentations, and published running engagements on innovative approaches and technologies, including pharmacogenetics. He's currently the Clinical Affairs Lead at Inogene Diagnostics, Inc., and it gives me a great pleasure to have Ashwin join us in this conversation, where we'll be diving a little bit into the topics of the business of pharmacy, pharmacogenetics, and just what the future of pharmacy holds on these topics. And with that, it's a pleasure to introduce Ashwin. All right, welcome back. And now we have Ashwin joining us. Ashwin, welcome to Diverse Conversations. And thank you so much for giving us your time. And, and, and you know, I'm sure that the un- insights that we're going to unpack with this conversation are really going to keep us thinking for the next little while. Um, with that, Ashwin, I welcome you here. And I would love to hear a bit more about your journey in terms of, you know, from being a pharmacist to where you are today. Um, I think it has been admirable. And I would love to hear how you managed to carve that path for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me, Ashka. Um, I'm very honored. Uh, I've seen some of the guests you've had on this show, and and uh, yeah, it's quite comp- it's quite the uh, the group of individuals um, that have been featured. So I'm very honored to be here. Uh, I guess my path. I, I don't know if it's been typical, and I almost feel like a lot of uh, pharmacists that are carving out new paths these days. Um, are having to sort of experiment a little bit. So mm-hmm. I think I think with that in mind, um, uh, I can probably just detail what I've done. Uh, I, I went the, the sort of the typical uh, community pharmacy route, uh, mostly as a pharmacy manager in community pharmacy um, for the vast majority of my career. Um, you know, I did some additional uh, schooling on the side part-time while I was working just to sort of feed my curiosities and open up options in the future. Um, and um, I suppose at, at, at a, a certain point, I felt, uh, well, I didn't feel I, I, I had to uh, complete my uh, rotations for my PharmD, uh, which yes. I was doing part time. Uh, and I had to make the tough decision to step down from my role mm. uh, at the time as a pharmacy manager, because I needed to complete the requirement. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to let that go by the wayside. And so I ended up doing that. I did some interesting rotations. Um, and, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I ended up doing a little bit of work on was uh, doing some analysis of pharmacogenetics, mm-hmm. which I knew for a little while was, you know, one of the major emerging um, emerging themes in pharmacy practice, which would sort of take on additional, uh, additional, um, sort of attention, I think, in the future. So I kind of wanted my, to align myself with some of these newer areas, uh, cannabis as well, of course. Mm-hmm. So with that, uh, you know, I did some work in that area and I started sort of using LinkedIn to engage some individuals in the industry 
And um, I suppose, long story short, I ended up um, uh, joining um, uh, a young Canadian pharmacogenetic company uh, called Indigene um, because we're just kind of aligned in our vision uh, of the future. And, um, you know, taking with me was the belief that pharmacists need to be um, really helping to drive pharmacogenetics um, going forward. So uh, there was a lot of alignment there, um, really sort of um, sort of trying to be an agent for change and increasing adoption of pharmacogenetics um, in healthcare at large, but also uh, with pharmacists right. being leaders in this uh, in this field. And yeah, I mean, they've even done studies. They've even found that physicians want pharmacists to be the leads here and, and be a, a major uh, a major agent in um, helping with the adoption of pharmacogenetics. So uh, I suppose long story short, that's uh, that's uh, that's my path in a nutshell. No, thank you for sharing that. I think, um, you know, it takes courage for sure to do what you have done. Um, I do not know of very many pharmacists who would step down from a managerial role to, you know, then pursue a path less trodden, <laughs> if I may say so. Because <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's it's a comfort, right? It's comfort of uh, having a job that you're very secured in, uh, pays you well, um, and then to kind of step away from it. And I'm sure you must have had a time where, you know, it was kind of like uncertain what the future looks like, um, right, for you and what is the next job or the career move looks like for you. Um, but that takes courage to do that. And I, I agree with you rightly where you said, like, you know, pharmacists we see as innovators in this time today are taking those risks and taking those chances and experimenting with, um, you know, what they want to do. Now, you did mention about pharmacogenetics, and I do see you as, uh, you know, an expert in that area, too. Uh, and that's and I'm really hoping that we can unpack a bit about the pharmacogenomics uh, side of it. And, you know, also truly understand just because you're a pharmacist as well, I think, uh, who better than you to kind of share some insights in, you know, how do you see the role evolving of, uh, and, you know, you did mention pharmacists to take lead in this area of pharmacogenomics, you know, how do you how do you see that role of a pharmacist evolving? And what can pharmacists do within the field of pharmacogenomics that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, just going down to the the underlying pharmacological basis of pharmacogenetics, it's it's really just part and parcel with what our training and understanding is. You have pharmacodynamic genes and pharmacokinetic genes. I mean, you know, we're familiar. And and even when you look at some of the mechanisms that underlie major drug gene relationships, they immediately look familiar because mm -hmm. they're very similar to drug interactions, which we're looking at constantly nonstop during the day. So there is very much a, um, a fit in terms of training and understanding that mm -hmm. works well. And I think with that, you know, we are ultimately drug therapy specialists. And this is uh, a component that has not been really recognized significantly historically. I mean, we're sort of in healthcare at large, I would think we, we tend to um, look at sort of non-genetic factors, mm -hmm. environmental factors, circumstantial factors, or factors that are immediately you know, in our faces though there could be genetic me mechanisms underlying that that um, um, that are not sort of being looked at. So right. I think, um, you know, I think that uh, uh, pharmacists 
have tremendous value to play here because mm -hmm. we're able to look at this information quite quickly and easily, even if you're, you're sort of naive to it and you start looking at it, it's really easy for us to get because of who we are and what our training looks like. Yes. And then to sort of layer on non-genetic factors, drug interactions, organ dysfunction, uh, patient factors, costs, coverage, uh, uh, evidence-based guidelines, things like that. So to be able to integrate all this information, mm -hmm. um, I think it just plays part and parcel. And, and as we see expanding scope occur, um, I think that you know we'll be able to even increasingly be able to harness this because then we can do things like you know we'll be able to adjust doses, mm -hmm. we'll be able to eventually get greater prescribing authority. Um, as you know, as we see what's happened in Alberta with advanced prescribing authority, yes. uh, hopefully we'll start to see some of the dominoes fall throughout the rest of the country and we'll see all these things. So I think it's an, it's a clinical, it's an important clinical decision support tool that improves outcomes that sort of fits part and parcel with our profession, our training, and has a real eye towards the future because, you know, we talk about precision medicine a lot mm -hmm. and, but we're 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 only inching towards that direction. And pharmacogenetics is a really key component of the precision medicine. And um, absolutely, yeah, no, thank yeah. you. I mean, I definitely learned a couple of things right there in 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 you know this brief period of time. So I'm sure we have a lot more to unpack. Um, but you know, the way I always envision the role of a pharmacist, especially with pharmacogenomics or any other specialty field, is is really from a service based model, right? Where it's it's really away from the product dispensing side, but we're really using our cognitive skills, as you rightly mentioned earlier. You know, we're using our training, our understanding of the way medications and medicine works um, with and how it interacts with the various aspects of our body. Um, you know, with that said, how, like, you know, what are some barriers, I guess, because pharmacogenomics, especially here in Canada, it's still very new. It's not as evolved as it is in the down South in the U in the United States. Um, you know, any insights you have in terms of what are some barriers, uh, you know, that are, that you may currently be seeing in terms of trying to implement this kind of a service in a community pharmacy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think that at the heart of both pharmacogenetics and a service-based cognitive model at large is the fact that we're largely anchored to the drug distribution um, model yes. of pharmacy practice, of course. And I mean, it's it's our re it's the it's the traditional revenue generation tool is dispensing mm -hmm. and actions, KPIs, et cetera. Yes tend to align with where the dollars go. Despite the fact that pharmacogenetics and other clinical services can be monetized, we're fairly inert. We like to do what we've done. The business comes to us, people need medications. We just need to put a slap up a sign that says pharmacy and people yes. just come to us. So, you know, I think I think in one end, uh, the fact that we, you know, everything is, is, is uh, is uh, aligned to this distribution model and we throw all our resources to it. I think that's one major area that that needs to be sort of mm. uh, gradually dismantled, I think, I think with regards to pharmacogenetics, but also advanced scope pharmacy practice at large uh, as we continue to as we continue to advance as a profession. Mm -hmm. um, certainly there's awareness, um, awareness of what the potential is and what can do. Uh, I think 
you know, the vast majority of pharmacists are having a know what it is, have heard of it, but don't, you know, haven't really gotten very deep um, to be able to sort of unlock the mm. potential of what it can do. So awareness, I think, is another component. Um, I think the last part um, is probably is probably the um, uh, is probably the cost angle mm. as well. Um, the fact yes. that there is an out-of-pocket payment, um, it's not cheap, even when you you know, even when you, um, um, uh, uh, when the products are priced, yes. priced quite competitively, it's still, it's still not cheap by any stretch. Um, mm -hmm. And that becomes especially poignant with certain, uh, certain um, uh, socioeconomic strata. Um, yes. So that's a, that's a tough thing. And, you know, public payers are not covering it. Private payers in some cases are, but it's not super clear. Right. And then we take that, and then I think there's this again going back to pharmacy inertia is is for pharmacists to say this is what it is, this is how much it costs. Are you interested? I think we tend to dismiss anything that's expensive. Yes. Even though there could be a receptive audience to it, um, there are people that you know when you you consider what some of these things like pharmacogenetics can do, mm -hmm. the value can provide can in many cases vastly vastly provide, you know, uh, this return that outweighs the initial upfront cost. We just don't like doing it. You know, if, you know, it's uncomfortable, you know, you, right, right. <laughs> like, like, you know, uh, yeah, this lidocaine 5% could help you for what you're, you're dealing with, but the tube is $30. So I don't think you're going to want it. You yes. do that right from the, like I've done, <laughs> we kind of go in um, sort of, uh, defeating defeating things right from the start. We're we're afraid of of selling and mm -hmm. we're afraid of big numbers. I mean, it comes from a good place because yes. we don't want to burden patients. But but it's not it's not a it's not a dichotomy. It's not it's too expensive. You can't do it. Yes. Or it's cheap enough and you can do it. You know, there's there 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 is. You have to consider the value it's providing. Um, Absolutely, and I we can't discount the fact that there's a lot of people that could derive value from these things. Yes. So I think that's uh, that's probably a big a big other barrier that that comes to mind. Ah, uh, thank you very much for sharing that because uh, you know, as somebody who's still learning the ropes around pharmacogenomics and still trying to understand that, like you know, this really helps me in in terms of understanding, like you know, what the what the landscape looks like and what are some of the challenges. And I and I agree with you, you know, like. As pharmacists, we are not, and I'm guilty of this myself too, you know, where I would say, tell my patients, you know, this is kind of expensive, like think about it before you actually fill this or something like that. But at the same time, in hindsight now, you know, I reflect back and I'm like, how many times may I, I may have dispensed a medication, which may not be the most optimal medication for a patient, but just because it was covered, I dispensed it, right? So it's kind of like... Yeah, it's like, you know, where where is the ethos? <laughs> and uh, it's and I agree with you. Like, I think one of the challenges, and this is, again, speaking from personal experience, is, you know, not understanding evidence um, behind pharmacogenomics and what exactly can it do, um, and not understanding how much of an impact it can have on patients, right? And this is slowly I'm learning as I'm, like, reading and I'm catching up on all this information. So I guess 
what I want to um, talk about is, you know, what are some of the opportunities that we could potentially leverage with pharmacogenomics in community pharmacy um, if someone were to, you know, implement a service model um, where pharmacogenomics was provided as a service to patients? Yeah, I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, like the quote-unquote addressable market for pharmacogenetics, you know, you can actually, when the, when you actually look at genetic variants that impact drug response, mm -hmm. it's nearly everyone in the population. Um, mm. Everyone has at least once. I mean, this is assuming somebody will need a medication in their lifetime, but the potential exists. And certainly over time, we'll find new variants, we'll find new gene drug links that can implicate themselves in this process. So right. at the outset, we have a large potential um, sort of uh, range of applicability, which is nearly everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is this this notion of of retrospective versus retrospective or sort of sort of um, as needed testing versus prospective testing. So prospective testing, because any sort of test uh, of this nature will have a lag. It does take right. a little bit of time to to get the sample. I mean, it's you know it can be a week, but that can be that can be significant in urgent um, scenarios. Um, and so, and so having that data right off the bat, because mm -hmm. your genes don't change over life, uh, yes. you know, is there's something to be said for having that information within, you know, at your fingertips, uh, depending on the, uh, just depending on the scenario, oh, to be able to, to influence decision-making right at the start. And then, I mean, there are many cases where individuals have a non-acute, but significant medical condition and they approach it and then, you know, it, you can wait a week or you can mm -hmm. wait a little bit of time where you can get the results and then speak to your healthcare provider uh, to be able to use that information to influence decision making. So, I mean, you know, there are sort of different ways in this in which this can be used all to highlight the fact that it is, it does have broad applicability and there are advantages of doing it prospectively. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I've, I've done a little bit of work sort of trying to help pharmacists uh, use ways to screen patients. Mm. Um, pharmacogenetics has, has really, really um, significant coverage in mental health. And when I say yes. coverage, I mean that there are significant, there's significant study and drug gene links that have been established uh, with psychotropic drugs. Mm. So essentially, you know, if somebody's being treated for, in particular, depression or anxiety, and if you're seeing them going through multiple drug trials or they're using too many benzos, despite the fact that they have an SSRI, or they're, you know, they're, they're using too many benzos or they're late in refilling, you know, their sertraline or their fluoxetine, things like that. Yes. Um, you know, or they're just complaining to you about a side effect mm -hmm. or something's not working. Um, there, there are all sorts of, um, there are all sorts of uh, places in which you can you can actually um, you can insert this type of intervention to help select treatment. So mental health is a big area. Uh, pain uh, mm. is another major area. Um, particularly, I mean, of course, there is overlap with some of the medications used, but there's also a lot of anti-seizure drugs, um, NSAIDs, et cetera, uh, that are implicated that have uh, strong drug gene uh, uh, data. And of course, these pain, chronic pain and mental health do have significant interlap, uh, interplay and overlap because, you know, if you're you know, chronic pain and you're on disability, right. you're probably going to get depressed at a certain point, et cetera. 
so you know and the same thing thing there like if if you're seeing an individual's constantly um asking for early refills if they're opioids or they're just using uh, you know a large a large morphine equivalent per day mm -hmm. beyond uh beyond what we consider safe in terms of risks like respiratory depression you know there's 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 all sorts of clues we can see you know or they're you know they're taking pregabalin or they're using too much or too little of it than prescribed you know there's there's all sorts of things so it's just they can easily fit into the course of the day the course of usual practice because we're looking at things like it hurts we're talking to our patients about their side effects we know their struggles and like we have in terms of healthcare um comparatively across professions the surface area of pharmacy towards patients is highest. Mm. So patients interact with pharmacies more than any other healthcare provider. This could right. be very transactional because they're just picking up a refill. It's stable chronic therapy. You don't need to speak to, they don't need to speak to them. At least, you know, it's not explicit that a discussion has to be had, but there are these surface point, there's these service area, and there's these opportunities that exist constantly uh, for uh, for for this kind of thing to insert itself, mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, it goes beyond that. There's other major therapeutic areas as well that that it can it can uh, be very helpful in. Thank you, Ashwin, for sharing that. I I definitely think you have presented some really solid use case scenarios, especially like you know in terms of early implementation and early uptake. Because um, I think we all know the challenges we have, especially in managing mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, and like we know that success rates can sometimes be so low because you know just we do not know what the genetic makeup is of that patient that we are treating, and we are trying to literally throw a you know a dart in the a dart in, in the dark, right? Uh, we are like trying yeah. to literally hit a bullseye, but like we don't have anything to gauge like whether it's going to hit it or not so i think this is this is fantastic and i think um i couldn't help but also ask you this question it's like you know can you tell us a little bit more about you know how can in a gene um you know support these pharmacies or what kind of services you know can does Inagene provide just so that our, our audience if they want to look into it or connect with you they would know what yeah. to expect yeah absolutely so we have a model a consignment model essentially so um, we ship kits to partner pharmacies that want to partner with us. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no upfront cost once the test is uh, is sold to the patient registered. Um, then there's a, an invoice that gets right. sent at the end of the month. But but sort of the there is a professional fee built in to um, the suggested uh, price that we that we usually um, usually indicate. So there okay. is a professional fee built into the cost of the test for you to be able to take the results, interpret them, um, and apply them to the clinical scenario that you complain uh, of your patient. Um, and that can be then used to inform decision-making, you know, uh, uh, pharmaceutical or clinical opinions, um, or basically sort of different types of therapeutic interventions. Mm. So um, so that we do partner with, with uh, a number of pharmacies and, and you know, like, really want to see it succeed so like i'm here like you email me you want to chat about your patient how to how to interpret this because it's you know it could be your first time it could be your, be your right. 50th time you're just you maybe you you just need uh, a little bit of guidance mm -hmm. i'm here you know you just you just let me know and we make time uh because we really want to succeed and just even just selfishly you know taking divorcing me from my my sort of my full-time day day job I, I want pharmacists to win Yes. Like I want pharmacists to win 
in healthcare and I want pharmacists to win with regards to advanced practice, start sort of divorcing ourselves from this distribution um, uh, role that we've just were clinging on to. And, you know, I just want to see pharmacists win. And I, 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 and like, I want to, I want to help you get to that level. And, you know, if it means that, you know, you do pharmacogenetics and then you also do, you know, a, a travel health clinic, yes. like I want to see you win on all those fronts and pharmacogenetics is a big part of that, but you know, there's, there's all sorts of other areas as well. So, you know, maybe this can help to sort of ignite exploring additional offerings um, to create a really, really robust uh, slate of services that can help to change your business model a little bit so that you're less reliant on dispensing because like, I mean, markups are just going to keep being slashed mm -hmm. in terms of, um, you know, payers and, and dispensing fees are static. And, you know, there's in the long run, this is just becoming less and less viable. Agreed. So, Thank you. Thank you. Because I, and I agree with you 100% on that. I feel like, you know, the dispensing model uh, or our current model, the way we practice pharmacy, especially in the community setting, it is something we need to be a little bit cautious about as you know, we look to the future, um, you know, yeah. with current economic times, uh, with the predictions for next year and the years after, we do not know what that's going to look like. We do not know if we rely on public funding to kind of support our dispensing. That's a real, you know, sword that's tingling on our neck I would, if I may say so um, but yeah. at the same time you know I, I you are a numbers guy I know you have done your MBA so like this is a perfect question pharmacist and an MBA you give me your insights uh, <laughs> I, you know, I can pretend to answer this question <laughs> oh I'm sure you know the answer in your year what we'll take any insights because uh, I, I really do think that you are very knowledgeable I have, I've heard you speak at conferences and I've heard I've seen your work and uh, and, you know, it was a pleasure when you said, yes, I'm going to come to your podcast. I was like, yes, okay, this is great. <laughs> so I have I to ask that. you this question. Um, can pharmacists have a viable future away from the dispensing focused model? Um, you know, can pharmacies survive and pharmacists survive? I think we can, but it's, we have to work hard to get there. Hmm. And I think a lot of it is, you know, a lot of it is inward, a lot of it is outward as well, but there is this inward growth that we need to sort of embrace a mindset change that, you know what, we've got to own, I've got to own the, this, this specialization that we have, which is in pharmacotherapy. Mm -hmm. We get the most training, we have the most knowledge with regards to drug use. And this can, you know, this can be in treatment options, this can be in determining adverse uh, reactions serious to, to minor, um, to, you know, major drug interactions, to, um, to you know, th there's so many, there's so many areas that drug therapy knowledge can um, have a major impact. So we really need to be a part and parcel with interpreting that knowledge in patient scenarios and providing value. Because every time there's some sort of study that's done looking at pharmacists expanded scope um, in different therapeutic areas, every single time, at least every single one that I've looked at, the outcomes are always better. Mm. And it provides cost, uh, it co provides better um, cost effectiveness compared to uh, sort of incumbent uh, options that exist. So, you know, I think we really just need to embrace that. And we need to sort of get away from this inertia and we have to get away from being self-defeatist. Mm -hmm. Hey, look, I'm guilty of it too. Uh, so yes. I'm saying this to myself 
as much as I'm saying it to others, and it's easier said than done. It's hard. Yes. It's it's hard, but I think I think certainly it's there because, you know what, there, <laughs> drug medication therapy is is still a, a massive component yes. of medical care, and we need stewards, we need experts driving that. And look, we have professions, other professions that are highly competent, prevent provide tremendous value, and and they are implicated within medications. But I think that. Pharmacists can actually get us to the next level. We can yes. we can take that level of care to the next level because every time we are offered this option and we embrace it fully, it always happens. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I think I think it just it does need some some thoughtful uh, changes, uh, you know, introspective and uh, structural changes to help us get there. And and you know that's that's not something that we can dismiss quickly. It's going to take some a bit of time. Absolutely. But no, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the way you have, uh, you know, answered that question, because uh, it's always, I think it's always a question a lot of pharmacists have in the back of their minds. But, uh, you know, it's something that we never really kind of talked about in the open. So I really appreciate that you took the time to share your insights. Um, and again, you know, uh, we're being very mindful and conscious that uh, these are your insights, but uh, truly appreciated. Um, and we want to make sure that, uh, you know, this is an individual opinion only, and it should not be implicated as anything else. But that said, I do want to, um, you know, take us back to your Pharmacy U conference presentation, because this kind of ties in with something you had mentioned in that in that presentation around the image of a pharmacist evolving into that of being an authoritative pharmacotherapy specialist. Um, I That word, like, you know, that, that term just stuck with me. Um, and I yeah. would love it if you could share a bit more in terms of that presentation and also, you know, if you could dive a little bit more deeper into what does that look like for you and, and you know, what do you, what is that vision of yours? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, it's my pleasure. And it's an area obviously I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. And I think it comes down to some, some maybe central themes or concepts. Mm. Um, you know, I think at the outset, we have to recognize that drugs are just drugs, they're commodities. Yes. It doesn't matter what pharmacy you go to, it's going to be the same everywhere. So there's no real differentiation. And so when you look at um, commodities, they tend to flow in certain ways, like mm -hmm. even on a in, a, in like a, a broader macroeconomic perspective, or even if you look at, if you, if you're so inclined, if you're to look at uh, the stock market or, or different exchanges and you look at, you know, different commodities, the way prices go up and down. Mm -hmm. And then if you were to look at a company that mines that commodity, so this is the company that you're looking at and you look at their stock chart, it actually flows in the exact same way. Right. So now think about drugs and think about pharmacies and we actually flow the same way. So we're actually, we're actually um, unfortunately bound to some of the same, um, some of the same risks that that these commoditized drugs have like shortages and back orders and things like that. So much of pharmacy operations get dragged down once these happen. So many resources need to be thrown that way. So we're actually at a significant level of risk in terms of operation of what we can do because we're so we're so bound to this function. Now it still is an important function, and you know th there there's there's much more to it than that. And pharmacists do have an important role to increasing accessibility during times like right now. But it's just sort of sort of say at, at the broadest level that that I think part of the issue is that because of so of our drug distribution function, 
unfortunately, we are extremely prone to the same risks mm. that underlie the drugs themselves. Uh, and those are business risks um, in one sense, which is really important for the profession because if we don't have a viable business model, our profession will, will really struggle. So I think that's one of the major, maybe the underlying sort of, uh, one of the underlying concepts behind what um, I've had the, the privilege of talking about. Um, but I guess the other things uh, in terms of uh, the profession is there's maybe two big concepts that I, I, I really like to hammer home. And number mm -hmm. one is core competencies. Um, so what is it that we're the absolute best at doing compared to anyone else? Uh, what are we best at doing in the background? Um, and, and, you know, that goes, to, goes back to our core training in pharmacotherapy, assessing and actioning drug therapy problems in a nutshell, um, monitoring um, uh, treatment changes, et cetera. We all know this, and this is what we're best at. So we have our core competencies. And then the other part of the equation is opportunity costs. Mm. So, you know, what are we doing currently and what could we actually use that time and, and resource to use if we were to allocate it somewhere else? And by allocating it somewhere else, could we have a greater impact? Right. And so this is sort of what, what I'm really passionate about because, you know, I think about, I think about early in my career, I was asked to um, do some bone density scanning. Mm -hmm. So they sent a little kit to the pharmacy and I sat in a chair a little bit outside the pharmacy and anyone who wanted a bone density scan, I could do that. And so I'm doing general preventative screening, which of course is, ha has a role, it's important. Yes. But this is not what I was trained to do. I'm a healthcare professional. This is healthcare, but this is not the healthcare that I'm specialized to, yes. to provide. And by doing this, I'm actually taking away time. I could be spending actioning a major drug therapy problem. Mm -hmm. You know, and how much time do we have in the day to do this? We We get so busy that we wish we could spend more time with patients doing this kind of thing. So... Why should I be doing bone density scans for something that, you know, I just learned how to do in the little manual that they mm -hmm. sent me to maybe say, hey, you know, you're, you might be osteopenic, go to your doctor and get a, a you know, a, a proper bone scan done. Yes. Or actually doing the things that I can provide demonstrable, deep value doing. So that, that's the opportunity cost and it's the core competency. So I think this is kind of, this, these concepts are sort of the North Star of how we should operate as a profession. And it's not going to be easy. There's lots of, there's lots of incentivization that needs to be changed. There's lots yeah. of things that we need to probably deprogram a little bit. But I think moving forward, we need to really think about these, these core concepts, mm -hmm. at least the way I see it. I think we really need to think about these core concepts to sort of, to sort of help to mold, um, a future for the profession that's that's both better for the health system and patient outcomes, but also better for us because now we're doing what we want to do. We're doing what we love, right? Which is providing you know drug therapy management services. So at least that's what I love doing. 
Agreed, agreed. And and you you did hit on quite a few prominent points over there, you know, with with um with explaining that and you've definitely given me thought, um, you know, some some things to think about for sure. Um, you know, as we as we move ahead and in, in, you know, how we advocate even for ourselves and our for our profession. Um, you know, you did allude to a little bit, but you know, what supports do you do you see would need to bring this vision to life? Uh, you know, in, in a community pharmacy practice. Like what do you think would be some some pieces that we currently do not have that would need to have implemented yeah and and i think actually there are two major pieces that are do exist and mm. a few do sort of undertake them but i i would argue for broader adoption which is number one automation like mm. we need to get dispensing machines in our pharmacies asap yes and they're expensive you know it is a large expense there are financing options available um um but, you know, I, I think we really need to, to embrace that, number one, uh, because, you know, yeah, anyways, we, I think we need to do that. And then I think the other thing is, is registered pharmacy technicians. Yes. We need to get them more deeply involved because they're better at checking prescriptions than we are. And it frees up our time to do, again, what we're, you know, we're best trained to be able to do. Exactly. To do all the schooling we did to to do, you know, to, 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 to only be focused on uh, technical checks. If you mm. give somebody this task that they own and they're specialized in and they are, you know, tasked with this specifically, they do a better job and they've done studies to this. So they've actually done studies with automation and registered techs um, um, discreetly and found that error rates go down, staffing is easier, stockouts are controlled better. So, you know, you, you see all these advantages. And so the central theme with these two um, sort of innovations, I would say, um, are that they liberate pharmacy, pharmacist time from the drug distribution um, behemoth, I would say, not behemoth, but maybe uh, uh, juggernaut, I suppose, that, <laughs> that, that dictates so much of what we do. So I think Absolutely. those are two big areas. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I agree with you. I feel like, um, you know, the more I think about what does the future of pharmacy look like, and then that's kind of what it looks like to my eyes. But I would love to, you know, if you were to, let's say, put it all together. I know you've kind of uh, alluded to it in, in various parts of our conversation, but what does the future pharmacist in practice look like to you? And, and you know, where does the future of pharmacy lie for you in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think that, you know, you there will have to be some sort of transition. And I think using using automation and registered technicians will be an important part of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we'll gradually start to do is even even within the 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 layout of pharmacies is we'll sort of see more of a separation, but we see more of a, a sort of a, you know, patient rooms and more of a clinic like feel. And then we have the drug distribution sort of maybe sort of slightly off to the side because that's, that's the operation that's inside the factory. We don't mm -hmm. need that to necessarily be as front facing. Um, and, you know, even a desk with, uh, with an administrative assistant sort of triaging things professional services and things like that. I mean, that's what I'd love to see. I know a couple of pharmacies have started doing that. And even there's been a couple of cases where I think in Alberta, they've started to, they've, they've opened up the uh, pharmacist clinic mm -hmm. at, um, at UBC. They have a pharmacy clinic yes. as well. I know um, Tim out in Manitoba uh, yes. set up his, his non-dispensing pharmacy. So we're seeing these 
these real innovators doing these things. So I think hopefully we'll see more of that going into the future. Um, but I, I do think that part of um, uh, part of what needs to happen is we need to reach a tipping point mm. because if you do do volume dispensing and that's sort of your bread and butter, the returns are still okay enough right yes. now. It's just going to get incrementally worse over time, gradually, insidiously, exactly, insidiously worse. And then at a certain point, it'll be like, oh my God, what's happening here? We need The ship's to, sinking need to and I have no time to get out. <laughs> it, it, exactly. So I think we do need to see more of this, this tipping point. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's certainly, it's an oversimplification. I think mm. that, you know, there's also going to be factors like, um, you know, um, uh, regulators and provinces um, of sort of creating allowances and in increasing uh, expanded uh, expanding scope mm -hmm. for pharmacists to be able to do these things. But um, and of course, of course, there's also the the question of remuneration and getting fair terms, fair remuneration for the acts that we do provide. Absolutely. But um, but yeah, I think that um, I think that that's what I'd like to to see us head towards and I think I think we can get there but I think there will be a little bit of pain for mm. that unfortunately well I am optimistic about the future you have painted for us that's for sure um and I'm really I, I really do feel like you know the, you you hit the nail in the head right there with with you know pharmacists tapping into their specialty um because right now a lot of functions we do are not necessarily our specialty um they're not necessarily what we were trained to do or not necessarily in line with what we should be doing um but at the same time it's kind of like those growing pains right it's like for us to reach from a to b we gotta kind of go up and down up and down up and down yeah. and then hopefully we'll reach our, our our point that we want to but thank you very much Ashwin and I think before I let you leave uh, you know I would love it if you could you know just as parting advice <laughs> for anyone who's looking to do something non-traditional um, or trying to you know break out of a mold and and trying to do something experimental it, any advice you would have given the old Ashwin as he was trying to figure out what do I do next and where do I go in my career and path uh, that you wish you had, but um, that you can share with our audience? You know, I would just say, look where others aren't looking, mm. do things that others aren't doing, particularly when there is a, um, there's a reward on the other side and particularly when the risks are fairly low. So yes. like it's an asymmetric bet. So for example, you know, networking, it doesn't take anything to just say, Hey, you know, to, to talk to somebody, you know, you're going to, you learn nuance in terms of how to approach individuals over time. And yes. there's ways that work better than others, certainly. And a lot of that actually goes back to just demonstrating your value and helping people before you ask for something from them. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I think that there's that just really, you know, even like LinkedIn is, is, is just a sort of an underused platform. There's a lot of individuals that are, that are on there, but not many are actually using it to their full potential. Um, so I think that's a major area, but it's really just, yeah, it's just being curious, look for th things that maybe other people aren't looking for and explore, explore ideas because a lot, oftentimes these are really, you have very limited downside for doing these things mm -hmm. and there's high upside. Yes. So your likelihood of success for each one of these sort of micro actions might be low, but when you stack them up, I mean, we look at a normalized distribution curve, 
things actually, that's when you start to see the opportunities arise. Yes. Um, and it's like, it's even, there's this concept, um, there's this, there's this uh, gentleman by the name of Sahil Bloom. He's a, he's a former venture capitalist hmm. out of the U.S. and, and it explores different curiosities and talks about your luck surface area. So, so, you know, oh, you know, you ask somebody that's in a really cool position, a really cool, and they're like, oh, yeah, I just happened to be at, at this spot at this time and ran into this person. Yes. So that's, that's at the outset, that's luck, right? Yes. But what are you doing to increase those chance opportunities? It's getting out there, getting out in situations, talking to people. Right. Uh, and being visible. So you have to kind of increase your surface area towards um, those chance opportunities if you want to, if you're really curious and interested in maybe doing something a little bit different. And, you know, like pharmacy, we have a few different defined career paths. We have, a, and we have, you know, we have still a lot of potential to do a lot of new and different things, especially with digital health and innovative areas. Mm -hmm. Um, um but it's not a well-trod path yet. So we need to find ways, you, you know, if you're really interested in doing some of these atypical things, um, you need to find, uh, you need to kind of look elsewhere. You have to look elsewhere from, you know, a, a listserv or a, a job board or things like that, because these aren't well, these are, these aren't well entrenched opportunities in our, in our in, in our system yet. So you kind of have to kind of go, go where others aren't, I suppose, which is sort of maybe a central theme of what I would. Thank you very about. much. Thank you. No, I, I, I resonate with that so much because, you know, if I reflect back on my own journey, like it has kind of, you know, exactly what that happened, right? It, it's like you start talking to people and sometimes, you know, you just never know who you run into. And there are some amazing people out there like yourself who will be happy to, you know, kind of shed some light in, in the area that they are an expert in and just help you or even connecting to people or whatever it is, right? But you got to give it a chance. You got to give it a try. Um, you have to be the one acting on it. Like nobody else can do that for you. Um, that's all on you to do. But thank you so much for sharing that, Ashwin, because I, um, I know like that is... Uh, Again, like I feel like advice, you just never know when you're gonna need it, and and I'm just hoping, and I I'm really hopeful that I, I'm, and I'm certain to a point as well that the advice that you just shared will be helpful to somebody for sure who's listening to this podcast. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time for that. And with that, um, you know, I am gonna thank you again for you know coming on, giving me your time, and having this wonderful conversation. I learned so much from this, so thank you so much. Uh, for sharing all those insights. Um, and also, I want to remind our audience who's listening to make sure that you uh, check out some of the links that I'm going to be putting down below to connect with Ashwin, to connect with the work that he's doing. Um, and please reach out to him. He's an amazing person, amazing pharmacist. And I'm sure, um, you know, you'll enjoy just getting to know him. <laughs> uh, so with that, Ashwin, thank you very much for your time. And, and really, I hope that we'll, we'll have you back at some point in the future as well uh, to kind of, you know, dig a few more insights out of you. <laughs> Thank you. That's, you're too kind. I, I, I hope I can live up to even half of the things you've said. So um, uh, I appreciate you uh, reaching out and uh, giving me the time of day to sort of uh, ramble on about what I've done and what I think. <laughs>
No, you have been, this was fantastic. I learned so much from this conversation. So truly, truly grateful. And no, seriously, I feel like uh, this is going to be one of those conversations that kind of just blows everyone's mind, just like it did for me, because I learned so much about pharmacogenetics today. So <laughs> awesome. So well, perfect. So with that, we'll wrap it up and uh, be sure to tune in for our next episode. But before you do that, make sure you please subscribe down below uh, just so that you get our next episode update as well. Okay, with that, signing off. Bye. And with that, we'll call it a wrap. Thank you once again for staying with us through this conversation. I hope you found this conversation just as inspiring, just as intriguing, and um, just as um, you know, eye-opening as I did. Um, and I hope you will join us for our next episode. Stay tuned for that. But make sure, please, please, please subscribe so that um, you know you stay updated in terms of when we release our next episode. Until then, thank you very much and bye-bye.